Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the Mary Morris case. On the morning of October 12th, 2000, 48-year-old bank loan officer Mary Henderson Morris left the Baytown ranch she had built with her husband of five years, Jay Morris. He walked her to the car before 6am and watched his shoe turn from their Burnett Bay home in the direction of her regular gas station. Jay Morris presumed she would stop and proceed to her job of 15 years at the Chase Bank at the Catty Freeway in Campbell in Spring Valley. That day, he made several calls to his wife, with whom he spoke several times a day, but each time he got her voicemail. Mary Henderson Morris's supervisor called the house after 2pm, asking for her. The supervisor did not identify herself, so Jay Morris simply said his wife was at work. When Mary had not called me back, I did not think it made any sense, he said. He eventually called Chase and was told his wife had never shown up. So I called a supervisor and found out she wasn't at work. And then that's when I knew immediately that there was something wrong because she didn't miss work. Worried, he called police and Bladlock, his stepdaughter. The two began to retrace Mary Henderson Morris's steps. They realized she'd forgotten her cell phone that morning and began to speculate that she'd gotten into an accident or had car trouble. As Jane Morris made a missing person report with the Sheriff's Department around 5pm, deputies received a call about an abandoned, burned-out car discovered by someone off-roading in a remote area. Just three miles from her home in the opposite direction of the bank in an isolated drainage area, Mary Henderson Morris's scorched body and car were nearly unidentifiable. Authorities identified the car as Mary Henderson Morris's Chevrolet Lumina that evening, but it took three days to confirm the remains inside were hers. Marilyn and I went down and the police was there, but they had everything blocked off, and they told us to turn around and come back home. I was frustrated that they wouldn't tell me, but at that point, I still wasn't thinking that it was her. Because of the condition of the body, it was impossible to determine how she had been killed. Her body was so severely burned, investigators had to use tooth fragments to identify her. There seemed to be no reason that she would have been murdered. There was no reason for it whatsoever. She was just a really a good person. You know, never did anything bad to anybody. They asked everything from gambling to drugs to affairs to anything, and all the answers were no. She didn't gamble, she didn't drink, nothing. Detectives investigating Mary Henderson Morrison's death quickly determined she had been a happy woman with a stable life. She met Jane Morris through a personals ad and had been content in their five-year marriage, the second for each of them. Her first husband, Jim Henderson, remained a part of her life through their daughter, Blarlock. He helped search for his ex-wife that October afternoon. She had no apparent enemies, said Sheriff's Detective Robert Tonry. No drugs, no affairs. It has been hard to track down suspects just short of some mysterious person that abducted her. End quote. Mary Henderson Morris's body was found in an area secluded by a gate and thick trees that must be accessed by way of a busy Baytown thoroughfare. No one knew that the smoke reported to the fire department about 10.20am on October 12th, which was dismissed as burning leaves, was from the fire that gutted Henderson Morris's car. The fire was set, interestingly enough, using massive amounts of accelerant which singed nearby trees and melted everything from the car wheels to Henderson Morris's jewellery, all of which, except 
except for her wedding ring was left behind. Though her purse was missing, no charges were made on her credit cards and her phone card was not used until five months later, which we'll get into. Another intriguing fact was on a Reddit post dedicated to this case. It was stated that Mary Henderson Morris's daughter says the police aren't entirely sure what the accelerant used was, but that they considered horse manure. Apparently, from what I'm to understand, Mary Henderson Morris was an equestrian and used buckets of manure to fertilize her garden. But if that's the case, that's not necessarily something a stranger would know. The majority of the time, somebody committing a robbery wants to get the most money with the least amount of trouble. Detective Tonroy stated. If you would take a purse, wouldn't you take jewellery? Why be so discriminating? Whoever did this took a great deal of time to seclude her in that area. If you get someone out for drug money, he may kill her and try to wipe off the prince. But someone went to the trouble to make sure there was absolutely no evidence left. End quote. With few clues, the detectives cannot account for the time between her departure before 6am and the reports of a fire at 10.20am on that day. A cashier at a gas station at Interstate 10 and Thompson recalled someone matching Henderson Morris's description, but the store's surveillance video from that morning was sadly destroyed before police could view it, and Mary Henderson Morris, known to carry little cash, did not make any credit card charges. Then, in April, six months after the killing, Jay Morris received $2,000 in bills for his wife's phone card, which detectives traced to a 16-year-old Galveston girl. Now, she told detectives she found a purse with the card and other belongings in March, sitting in a parking lot of a Galveston convenience store. The girl, who detectives determined was not connected to the slang, said a neighbor kept the purse. Tonry found the purse, but Henderson Morris's family said it could not have been hers. Unfortunately, the neighbor had thrown away the other the contents. Around the same time, Jay Morris began receiving phone calls to his unlisted phone line from people asking for Mary. Caught off guard, Morris initially said she was not home, and by the third call, he followed detectives' advice and gave the caller Tonry's number as a place to reach her. The caller allegedly said, and I quote, oh yeah, right, end quote. That was the last call that Morris received. Now, detectives traced the phone calls to a Baytown apartment on Northwood, but no further leads were apparently developed. Three days later, the body of 39-year-old Mary McGuinness Morris was found in her car under nearly the exact same circumstances as Mary Henderson Morris. Police began looking into Mary McGuinness's Morris's life. She was a nurse practitioner in charge of several clinics for a major industrial corporation. Mary McGuinness Morris left her home and family in West Virginia in 1998 to become medical director for Union Carbide in Houston, where she oversaw several of the company's clinics. An interesting company that suffered many major disasters, one in 1927 that lasted until 1932, and two in both 1984 and 1985. Now, Union Carbide Corporation is an American chemical corporation wholly owned subsidiary since February 6th of 2001 by Dow Chemical Company. Union Carbide produces chemicals and polymers that undergo one or more further conversions by customers before reaching consumers. Some are high-volume commodities and others are specialty products meeting the needs of smaller markets. Markets served include paints and coatings, packaging, wire and cable, household products, personal care, pharmaceuticals, automotive, textiles, agriculture, and oil and gas. The company is a former component of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. 
Founded in 1917 as the Union Carbide and Carbon Corporation from a merger with National Carbon Company, the company's research has developed an economical way to make ethylene from natural gas liquids such as ethane and propane, giving birth to the modern petrochemical industry. The company divested consumer product businesses every day in ever-ready and energizer batteries, glad bags and wraps, Simonet's car wax and Preston antifreeze. The company divested other businesses before being acquired by Dow and including electronic chemicals, polyurethane intermediates, industrial gases, Lindy, and carbon products. The Union Carbide and Carbon Corporations was formed on November 1st of 1917 from the merger of the Union Carbide Company founded in 1898, the National Carbon Company founded in 1886, Lind Air Products Company, a maker of liquid oxygen at Buffalo, confiscated from, and I'm going to butcher this name, Gesellschaft Fuhlindes Ismaschen AG, under the Trading with the Enemy Act of 1917, and the Pristolite Company manufacturer of calcium carbide and in Indianapolis. In 1920, the company set up a chemicals division with which manufactured ethylene glycol for use as automotive antifreeze. The company continued to acquire related chemical producers, including the Bakelite Corporation in 1939. The company changed its name to Union Carbide Corporation in 1957 and was often referred to as Carbide. It operated Oak Ridge National Laboratory from 1947 to 1984. During the Cold War era, the company was active in the field of rocket propulsion research and development for aerospace and guided missile applications, particularly in the field of chemicals and plastics, solid rocket motors, and storable liquid fuels. R&D was conducted at the Technical Center in southern Charlestown, West Virginia. The Aerospace Materials Department was part of the company's Carbon Products Division. U-Car Batteries was Carbide's industrial and consumer zinc chloride battery business. The business, including Energizer Alkaline Batteries, was sold to Ralston Puna in 1986 following a hostile takeover attempt. After the Bhopal disaster, which I'll get into in a minute, Union Carbide was the subject of repeated takeover attempts. In order to pay off its debt, Carbide sold many of its familiar brands such as Glad Trash Bags and EverReady Batteries. Dow Chemical announced the purchase of Carbide in 1999 for $8.89 billion in stock. The deal was consummated in 2001 and valued at $11.6 billion. Now we're going to get into three of the biggest disasters this company suffered. First, we'll start with the Hawk's Nest Tunnel Disaster. Now, the Hawk's Nest Tunnel Disaster took place between 1927 and 1932 in a West Virginia tunnel project led by Union Carbide. During the construction of the tunnel, workers found the mineral silica and were asked to mine it for use in electroprocessing steel. The workers were not given masks or breathing equipment to use while mining. Due to silica dust exposure, many workers developed silicosis, a debilitating lung disease. According to a marker on site, there were 109 admitted deaths. A congressional hearing placed the death toll at 476. Now we get into the asbestos mining and Caldria brand fibers. In the, 19, in the early 1960s, Union Carbide Corporation began mining a newly identified outcrop of Chrysotylobet asbestos fibers near King City and New Indra, California. These fibers were sold under the brand name Caldria, a combination of Cal and Indria, and sold in large quantities for a variety of purposes, including addition into joint compound or drywall accessory products. Union Carbide sold the mine to its employees under the name KCAC, King City Asbestos Mine, in the late 1980s, but it only operated for a few more years. 
Then we get into the 1984 Bhopal disaster. Union Carbide India Limited, owned by Union Carbide at 50.9%, and in Indian investors at 49.1%, operated a pesticide plant in the Indian city of Bhopal. I really apologize if I get that name wrong. Around midnight on the 3rd of December 1984, methyl MIC gas was accidentally released from the plant, exposing more than 500,000 people to MIC and other chemicals. The main reason was the poorly managed safety procedures which were either malfunctioning or not working and weren't repaired in order to cut costs. The government of Madhya Pradesh, I really apologize if I get that name wrong, confirmed a total of 16,000 deaths related to the gas release. It left an estimated 40,000 individuals permanently disabled, maimed or suffering from serious illness, making it one of the world's worst industrial disasters. In 1982, Carbide's auditors warned of a possible runaway reaction. Carbide insisted the accident was an act of sabotage by a rogue worker. Union Carbide was sued by the government of India and agreed to an out-of-court settlement of US $470 million in 1989. The plant site has not yet been cleaned up. Warren Anderson, CEO at the time of the disaster, refused to answer to homicide charges and remained a fugitive from India's courts. The US denied several extradition requests and Anderson died on the 29th of September 2014 in Florida. Seven UCC employees were convicted of criminal negligence in 2010 and fined $2,000 each. Now we get into the 1985 West Virginia gas leak. The year after the Bhopal disaster, a faulty valve at the UC plant in Institute, West Virginia, caused a large cloud of gas that injured six employees and caused almost 200 nearby residents to seek medical treatment for respiratory and skin irritation. Union Carbide blamed the leak of aldecarb oxime, made from mick but does not contain any mick itself, the main ingredient in the popular farm pesticide Timic, on a valve failure after a build-up of pressure in a storage tank containing 500 pounds of the chemical. A company spoke person insisted that the aldecarb oxamine leak never was a threat to the community, end quote, which I don't believe. I mean, look, you had nearly 200, you injured six employees and you caused almost nearly 200 residents to seek medical treatment and respiratory and skin irritation. And you're going to say that this leak was never a threat to the community. What a load of crap that was. A company spokesperson wants to say that it was never, uh, never was a threat to the community, but yet you've got 200 people that were affected and you had a faulty pressure valve and you want to say, oh, well, this stuff is actually a main ingredient in a popular farm pesticide, but then you want to say that it was never a threat to the community, really? Like, you're dealing with chemicals that are used in pesticides and you want to come out and say, oh, well, this stuff was never a threat to the community. But yet, six employees were injured and nearly 200 residents had to seek medical treatment for respiratory and skin irritation, and you want to say that those 200 people were not threatened in any way with with this gas cloud that was released. What a load of crap. She missed her family greatly, said Jamal, who also worked at Union Carbide with Mary. Them and the hills of West Virginia, end quote. Mary was like an angel. She was very joyful, always happy, making people laugh. Not enough words really to describe her. I mean, she was just really loved by everybody. Anything basically a doctor would do, Mary did. She would work. 14 hours a day, not think twice, go back in of an evening, weekends, whenever she was needed. As Mary McGinnis Morris settled into her life in Houston, she grew to love her job and made fast friends with Jamal, but her life was not without its problems. Her marriage was troubled. Problems escalated when the couple moved to Houston where Mike Morris was out of work. They argued often and at one time he believed she was having an affair. Quote, I confronted her in the person, Mike Morris said. They looked me in the eye and denied it. 
I chose to believe him. We had problems in the last few years, but we were well on our way to solving them. We were back at the point of being best friends when she died. End quote. When Mike heard rumors of an alleged affair between Mary and a family friend, he confronted them head on. I can tell you that at the time that that happened, they both looked me in the eye and they both told me that, that there had been nothing inappropriate in their relationship. And I didn't see any betrayal in her eyes. Friends and family, however, suggest the marriage had not been mended. They said Mike Morris was distrustful and often followed his wife. Mary put it to me that she'd fallen in love with someone else, said Lua, her sister. But she was not going to leave Mike. She was trying to make her marriage work. But after they'd gone through three or four marriage counselors, it had gotten to the point where she would have asked him for a divorce. End quote. There was also tension at work. Apparently in early 2000, a temporary employee joined Mary McGuinness Morris's staff and complained to her superiors, questioned her authority, and even seemed and often seemed agitated, or so Jamal, her friend, claimed. Quote, the problems with them started immediately, but in the last few weeks of her life, things had become very stressful for her, Jamal said. She was really afraid. End quote. She told me that she was afraid of this person that she worked with, and I said, do you really think he could hurt you? And she said, yes, I do, and I think he could do worse. Now, this co-worker, Dawn Young of Kemmer, denied any involvement in Mary McGuinness's Morris's death, but declined to elaborate in an interview. He said he is prohibited by a court order sought by Union Carbide from speaking about the case. I'm sorry if I get that name wrong. Mary McGuinness Morris began carrying a gun about two weeks before she was killed. She made a phone call to me on her way home, and uh, she, I could tell that she was that she was shaken. <sighs> okay, baby, what's going on? Honey, this whole thing is really out of control. She got home and she asked me if I would provide her with a gun to carry with her for her own protection. She asked me to go over the, the handling and use of the gun. When we were finished, she asked me to place the gun in her car under the driver's seat. Then, the Thursday before she was killed, Mary McGuinness Morris found a disturbing note on a desktop calendar at her Clear Lake clinic. It said, and I quote, death to her, end quote. Her office was also in disarray and photos had been turned over. She found things out of place on her desk, pictures turned to face the wrong direction. On his desk was written the words death to her, which she assumed was written about her. She told her superiors who advised her to stay home that Friday, and later that day, Young returned to the office to make sure his time card had been signed. He made a scene and was asked not to return. He was banging on the windows asking for Mary, Jamal said. He had to be escorted out. End quote. She had a co-worker doing everything in his power to wreck her career and a husband with whom she had a bad relationship, Detective Coleman said, who later investigated the case. She had a $500,000 life insurance policy on her as well. End quote. Three days after the incident, she met her friend Laurie Gamel at the clinic to give her an allergy shot. According to Laurie, she seemed fine. She claimed that she was going to stay a few more hours at the clinic, run a few errands, and then go home and make dinner. Mary seemed fine that Sunday. 
and we chat a little bit about her making dinner for the family and she had a couple of errands to do and she was only going to stay a couple of hours and then she was going to go home. Later that afternoon she made an alarming phone call to Laurie. Quote, she said there is someone here who's given me the creeps. She said it matter-of-factly. She did not sound scared. She was aware that she was uncomfortable and was going to head home. End quote. She said that she was going to return to work, sign off her computer and head home. When she was in the drugstore, she saw somebody that gave her the creeps. She said, I'm just going to run across the bridge and turn off my computer and sign out of the building and, and go home. Twelve minutes later, she made a frantic 911 call. Now, during the call, she was apparently abducted and attacked by an assailant. We're not releasing the content of the tape. It covers the attack that happened to Mary. And anybody that's ever heard that tape has uh, just had their blood chilled listening to it. It's, it's a very chilling, disturbing call. In a call to Jamal, Mary McGinnis Morris said she may have recognized the person who made her nervous. Quote, she said she thought she'd met this person through the person at work she was having problems with, Jamal said, end quote. Though the employee gave Mary McGinnis Morris trouble, he had been to her home for a party, Coleman said. She and Mike Morris had also attended a party that the employee had thrown. Quote, he was not excluded from company events, Detective Coleman said. They all knew each other. They had been out together. End quote. When Mary McGinnis Morris did not come home that evening, her husband of 17 years, Mike Morris, reported her missing to police, friends, and family. The next morning, a wreckage driver found her body with a single gunshot wound to the head in her company car, a 2000 Dodge Intrepid, on West Little York near the Eckhart in the opposite direction of her workplace. The medical examiner determined that she had been beaten and shot to death, and the killer had tried to stage the scene to make it look like a suicide. Quote, It had the appearance of a suicide, said Detective Coleman of the Sheriff's Department. There was physical evidence that suggested it couldn't be. End quote. Mary McGinnis Morris was killed with the gun registered to Mike Morris that she had been carrying. Its placement could indicate it was suicide, but there was clear evidence of a struggle. She was severely beaten and may have been gagged. Detectives found blood on the passenger door, which was left open, and the keys were outside the car. Friends and family acknowledged Mary McGinnis Morris began to carry a gun because of problems at work, but some offered conflicting reports about whether she had stopped. Mike told us she was carrying the gun up until her death, but a friend and co-worker said she was going to quit carrying it, Coleman said. How would someone know she had a gun in her car? If she'd been killed by just anyone with a gun, that would be one thing. But she was killed with the family gun. End quote. Mary McGinnis Morris's car had doors that locked when the car was put into gear, suggesting that the person who attacked her had access to the car. Quote, she did not let anybody in, Detective Coleman said. It appeared it was somebody who would have been able to get into the locked car. End quote. Mary McGinnis Morris was not robbed. The only item Mike Morris reported missing was a ring she was known to wear. There's an interesting side note about that ring that no one has ever gotten to the bottom of, although various people have tried. Months after the killing, a friend of the family who was having dinner with Mike Morris noticed that his 16-year-old daughter Katie was wearing the ring. The Morrises told the friend they had found it, and the friend later told Coleman. To my knowledge, it is unclear whether this information was really investigated by the police, given the fact that Mike refused to let his daughter be interviewed by the police for some two months as stated by Coleman. Police suspected both the co-worker and her husband Mike. Mike claimed that he was at the movies with his daughter at the time of the murder. However, he refused to take a polygraph and would not let his daughter be interviewed by police for two months as stated by Coleman. He also hired an attorney shortly after the murder took place. 
Investigators learned that Mike and Mary were having problems with their marriage as well. Quote, We have not been able to eliminate these people as suspects. The problem with this one is a lack of cooperation by the people closest to her. We didn't have access to her daughter for two months, and her husband has not helped out. End quote. He wouldn't meet with us without an attorney. Witnesses don't need attorneys. Suspects generally have attorneys. Mike Morris says he was simply following the advice of some trusted friends. Several of these people suggested that I take an attorney with me, not because I had anything to hide, but just to have somebody with me that was familiar with the procedures. Detectives were also suspicious about Morris's refusal to take a polygraph test. I was on anti-anxiety medications. I was on antidepressants. I wasn't really sure that, that this polygraph examination that they were talking about could adequately compensate for all of those conditions. Another two hours after Mary McGinnis called 911, she received a call on her cell phone. Mike Morris, who was at the movies with Katie, told detectives he never reached his wife. He said the phone rang unanswered, but phone records indicate the call lasted for four minutes. That was the final incoming call completed to McGinnis Morris's phone. He claimed that the four minutes was a mistake on the phone company's part, yet it was recorded that the call, far from being unanswered, lasted for four minutes, and there are call records that confirm this. If the call went unanswered, as Mike Morris claims, how is it that the call lasted for four minutes? It doesn't make any sense. There was a phone call some two hours after Mary Morris made a very desperate and chilling call to 911. That call was made by Mike Morris. The problem is, this phone call lasted for four minutes. This was, by all indications of the cellular telephone company, a completed call. What you have to wonder is, what did that phone call either set in motion or uh, end? Normally, um, the, the cellular service would have kicked in and, and said that the uh, that the party you were calling was unavailable. Uh, I didn't get that. I don't know why I didn't get that. But as long as the phone was ringing and I thought that there was a possibility that she would answer it, I let it ring. But if the call went unanswered, detectives questioned why it showed up on Mary's cell phone bill. I don't accept that Mike made this phone call and that the phone rang for four minutes. It's not possible. The, the question is, who answered the phone on the other end? That's what the big question is. And what did they talk about for the four minutes? Some suspect that due to the similarities in the two cases, a contract may have been put on Mary McGinnis Morris's life, but that the killer accidentally killed Mary Henderson Morris and then later corrected his mistake. This theory was supported by a caller to a Houston newspaper who said that they'd gotten the wrong Mary Morris the first time. A call came into the Houston Chronicle, and I verified this with somebody at the Chronicle. Between the time the first Mary Morris was killed and the time my friend was killed, saying something to the effect that they got the wrong Mary Morris the first time. Further supporting this is that the two Marys lived in close proximity and were similar in appearance, which is true. If you look at the photos online, they do look very similar. 
However, the investigators claim that they have no evidence to support the theory and believe that the murders may have just been a coincidence. As well with the remoteness of the location where the uh, victim was found, as well as the effort that was taken to, you know, destroy the evidence and, and the vehicle, um, that would be consistent, you know, with a, you know, contract killing. But with the background of the victim, uh, that doesn't seem likely. That the first Mary Morris was a, was a mistake. Uh, it was a missed hit, a, a botched hit, something like that. There's not anything uh, that we found that would uh, support that. The victim's families, however, are certain that the cases are not coincidental. I agree as well. The astronomical odds that two Mary Morses was killed three days apart, very similar in looks, to me is that's what it is, an astronomical effort, not connected. I can't help but think they have to be related. I can't imagine that two women with the same name would be murdered within three days of each other, both found in their cars, and not have that be related. The cases remain unsolved. The male worker was an obvious suspect in Mary McGuinness's Morris's murder, along with the apparent death threat he had left on bad terms, quitting his job after several failed attempts to discredit Mary. Investigators say that they may have evidence to link the co-worker to the crime. Her husband, Mike Morris, is another prime suspect. They are suspicious of his lack of cooperation, multiple motives, and, four min and a four-minute phone call that happened at the time of the murder that he denies ever took place. Sadly... To this day, this case remains unsolved. I had absolutely nothing to do with the arrangement of Mary's murder. It's a hurtful insinuation, um, but you know, I know that it's, it's absolutely untrue. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all social media you can follow me on all major social media platforms youtube bitshoot daily motion i'm also on twitter and instagram links are all down below in the description if you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover don't hesitate to send me a message i'm your host and this has been the unanswered questions podcast until next time Next on Unanswered Questions. Joseph Daniel Casalero, born June 16th of 1947 and who died on August 10th of 1991, was an American freelance writer who came to public attention in 1991 when he was found dead in a bathtub in room 517 of the Sheridan Hotel in Martinburg, West Virginia. 